This is Biosphere, a Royal Society of Biology podcast that covers the broad field of the life sciences by interviewing bioscience researchers and discussing interesting biological discoveries and science policy. Welcome back to Biosphere, everyone. I'm your host, Freya. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we are going to discuss climate change and our environment, and I'm joined by my colleague, Beth, to help us explore this important topic. Thanks for helping out with this episode. For our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Beth. I'm the Membership and Events Assistant for External Clients at the Royal Society of Biology. I studied zoology at university, and then I went on to do a master's in science communication. Yeah, both me and Beth did science communication as our masters. And um, I mean, SciComm's great. Wouldn't you agree, Beth? SciComm is a very important topic, especially in today's society. I think COVID very much brought science communication to the forefront of what everybody was talking about. Yeah, I guess the vaccines with COVID was really important to try and tackle misinformation and to try and communicate it as best as we can. But enough about science communication. Um, We're here to talk about climate change and the studies researching what is being affected by rising temperatures and how we can help mitigate these effects. So this week, I found a really interesting paper that was published recently by the American University talking about how their scientists have used shoebox satellites to look at how trees are being affected by global warming. So these researchers have decided to use imaging technology to look at these effects, both on a forest level, but also as specific as an individual tree. So these satellites called CubeSats are launched into low earth orbit, which allow environmental scientists to make more precise measurements about trees response to climate change. So what sort of responses were they actually looking at? Well, they were examining seasonal leaf emergence or what they referred to as green up in urban forests. So the scientific community has been interested in looking at trees in cities as that will allow us to have a preview of how global warming may affect vegetation in non-urban areas. This is because a phenomenon called the urban heat island effect causes city temperatures to grow two to three degrees warmer than non-urban areas. What was the original understanding of leaf emergence or green up? With previous satellite technology, scientists thought that they observed that vegetation was greening up earlier and losing their leaves later. But this technology did not allow researchers to study species on an individual basis, as the images were way too pixelated. So with this new study, the researchers downloaded imagery covering 10,000 tree crowns in Washington, D.C., which included 29 leaf shedding tree species and showed that there were more factors at play when it came to the timing of the start and end of the season. For example, the type of tree species, which makes complete sense. So basically the study concluded we need to be species specific when looking at the urban heat island effect as phenotypic plasticity can vary with different species. For our listeners, phenotypic plasticity is the adaptability of an organism to changes within its environment. Yeah, so one very obvious example is when your skin tans. So that's your body responding to an increase in UV radiation. So our bodies produce more melanin, which is what makes us tanned, to block out harmful rays that damage our skin. So the conclusion was that each tree species will have its own level of adaptability to an increase in heat. So if a warmer climate has an impact on earlier greening, this may shift the temporal variation in species so pollination may happen slightly earlier yeah 
I guess it's kind of good to have more information on this sort of stuff because then obviously tree species may have specific insect populations that help with the pollination process. I think it's a really good step towards understanding how different species will adapt to climate change because then we can focus mitigating these effects in a species-specific way. As we're on the topic of new ways that technology can improve environmental science, I was also reading about an ongoing project that uses robots to protect and restore the environment. Oh, really? What was what was that about? So Project Seagrass is a collaboration between several organizations, including the Welsh government, WWF and Swansea University. In the last 40 years or so, the world has lost a third of its seagrass meadows. That's a shocking amount. That's so much. Yeah, and seagrass is an extremely important species in preserving the health of the ocean. It's also extremely important in terms of climate change because seagrass can actually absorb CO2 from the atmosphere 35 times faster than tropical rainforests. I mean, that's quite... A huge amount. I mean, most people think about rainforests, the Amazon being one example. I mean, the statistic that comes up is the Amazon stores 25% of the world's carbon, but I think sea plants are often overlooked. I know that algae stores a lot of carbon as well, but seagrass is obviously just as important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't have quite the same reputation as the tropical rainforests, such as the Amazon, but they are really, really important for our coastal ecosystems. They protect our coastlines from erosion, and they also provide habitats for thousands of species, including important species like cod, sharks, squid, turtles, octopus, the list goes on. It's very important that we aim to restore the meadows of seagrass that we've lost in the last 40 years. So what is Project Seagrass specifically doing about this? So the interesting thing about Project Seagrass is recently they've created a robot called Shack that can transport 20,000 seagrass seeds to the seabed, which it then injects into the sediment, which helps the seagrass meadows reform and grow. It was designed by ReefGen in San Francisco, and the aim of this is to scale up and speed up the process of seagrass meadow restoration, or as it is sometimes called, sea wilding. Project Seagrass have put forward an ambitious plan to restore 10% of the UK's seagrass. They're doing quite well so far. Um, since 2013, they have planted over a million seagrass seeds across the world. And so with the help of new technology like this robot, hopefully the large scale environmental restoration plan will improve coastal habitats while also helping to mitigate climate change by absorbing and storing a vast amount of carbon. I mean, that's a really ingenious solution. So hopefully more of the world's inventors can create Shack or something like Shack. <laughs> yeah. Um, Utilising new technologies, I think, as seen by you know, the satellites that you were talking about and little robots and things that can help us improve the current way that we do things is really important in the future of climate change research and actually aiming to store that carbon that we've been releasing into the atmosphere for many years. Yeah. Well, we've discussed some pretty amazing research, but now we are actually going to speak directly to a special guest who is studying something really exciting...
we're honored to have Professor Oz Schmitz from Yale University speaking to us today. He is the Yale School of the Environment Osler Professor of Population and Community Ecology, and his research focuses on the linkage between two important components of natural systems, biodiversity and ecosystem services. So thank you so much for joining us today, especially with the time difference in the States. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join. Oz recently published a paper examining how conserving wildlife can help mitigate climate change. So I guess our first question would be, how do you think climate and biodiversity link together? And what did you find while doing your research? Good question. <laughs> and it's an appropriate question because people have been looking at the two issues as very profound and, and fundamental issues of global concern you know, the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis, but they haven't been looking at them together. And we know that life on this planet really runs the carbon cycle, if you will. And we need to control the carbon cycle, especially our emissions, but also drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it on the planet. And the best way to do that is to use nature. And what we mean by nature is the species that make up nature and that includes plants and animals. And together they drive the functionality of ecosystems and the carbon cycle, and they're what actually enhance the carbon storage in ecosystems. So what we found was counter to conventional wisdom in, in the ecological sciences and earth sciences. You know, people have argued that animals don't really matter. They're just not abundant enough. You can't store enough carbon in their bodies to make a difference. But what we found is that way of looking at how animals contribute to the carbon cycle is not an accurate way to look at it. Instead, animals actually change how much carbon plants take up and how much carbon gets stored in the soil. And that's just through a variety of functional roles they play in ecosystems. Yeah, I, I guess that we've always looked at plants, as you mentioned, we haven't really looked at other species and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So in this study, you looked at nine different wildlife species, for example, sharks, wildebeest, sea otters, African forest elephants. What would you say was the most significant finding in terms of specific species and carbon capture? You know, it's, it's interesting. I've been working on this issue for about 12 years. Um, and so it's not surprising to me that, you know, the numbers add up the way they did. So in some sense, nothing is surprising on an individual basis. I knew the animals could contribute the amounts that they do or potentially. But when you add everything up as a total, that's what becomes astounding in the sense that the amount of carbon that just this group of animals that we focused on, which is uh, 6.4 billions of tons of atmospheric CO2 that they can take up, is actually on a scale at which the IPCC wants to see and they're promoting the use of technology to do this, wind generation, solar generation of electricity. And they're hoping that the various technologies that they propose will reduce our emissions by 6.4 billion tons in each of these different sectors, right? And so what we're showing is that the numbers rival what the IPCC is also already looking at in terms of other big gains and solutions. Yeah, mentioning the IPCC um, kind of links to science policy, and that's obviously very important right now with climate change, conservation and rewilding. So obviously the US came out of the Paris Agreement and then rejoined two years ago. In terms of conservation, how important do you think the Paris Agreement is? And do you think more needs to be done? You know, the, the Paris Climate Agreement is really about 
reaching net zero emissions, right? Reducing our carbon footprint on this planet. And so what they're really promoting um, is a shift in technology in terms of energy generation from fossil fuel burning to green technologies such as wind and solar and geothermal. Part of the Paris Agreement is also let's protect ecosystems. You know, let's protect the ones we have, which is important. We need nature to be present on this planet so that the carbon cycle can operate. But they don't necessarily mention is that we still have a huge amount of CO2 in the atmosphere sitting there. And if we don't scrub that out of the atmosphere, we will actually overshoot 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius anyway, even if we reach net zero. And the reason is what we've done is since the dawn of the industrial revolution, we've just polluted the atmosphere with CO2, right? We released our CO2 into the atmosphere at an amount equivalent to 500 billion tons of CO2. And we need to scrub all of that back out of the atmosphere so that we don't overshoot. And that's where nature comes along and nature-based solutions and animating the carbon cycle or what the kinds of solutions we're suggesting to use animals to assist in doing that is where the game changer is in terms of speeding up how much atmospheric CO2 we take up and store on the planet. Mm -hmm. You mentioned technologies and new types of energies, such as wind farming. So I guess linking to that science policy idea, of course, energy is one of the main contributors of global warming and releasing greenhouse gas emissions into the, the atmosphere. Do you think we should be focusing more on the natural world or do you think potentially interlinking all of these different processes to kind of combat this problem is maybe the best way? You know, I think part of the problem so far is that we've been trying to find that single home run solution that everybody can apply. Mm. And I don't think that's the right way to go. You know, so I'm not suggesting conserving animals across the planet will be that single life-saving goal that we need or strategy. We need to create a portfolio of solutions that we distribute throughout the planet that people can feel like they can pick a solution and then implement it in their backyard. And the other thing is we're tending to rely a little more on technology and hopeful of unproven technology where nature is a proven technology. Nature's been running and driving the carbon cycle for millennia. So why not use nature to our advantage? It's the fundamental life support system that we have. And so I would argue that yes, we, we need to elevate the recognition that nature is important. We need to protect nature. We need to protect the species that drive the carbon cycle. But in addition to that, we need to find technological solutions also to help speed up and, and capture carbon. Certainly we need technology to scrub the carbon that's emitted while we're currently generating energy. And so we can slowly transition to a more nature-based economy over time when we have the right technology in place to do some of this and technology that's proven. But in the interim, what we're finding even in our paper is that in terms of getting that atmosphere or the CO2 out of the atmosphere over the next 70 years, nature can do that for us and can, you know, do it reasonably well. Again, as I've shown in the article, if we take out 6 billion tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere over the next 70 years, we'll be good. We won't overshoot, right? And if we think about more species, right, the species that we've really looked at are just the tip of the iceberg. If we sort of start quantifying what other species might be able to do and actually verify that they're doing that, we might actually be able to speed up how much atmospheric CO2 we capture and store on the planet.
I guess nature is very much the key to all of this. So managing conservation strategies is really important. And you've mentioned in previous research that there has to be a trade-off between animal management regarding carbon mitigation and then animal management in terms of biodiversity protection. Could you just give an example of what you mean by that? Well, for example, what people have done so far, because they haven't linked biodiversity, animal diversity especially, with the climate, what they're trying to do with these strategies of 30 by 30 or protecting half the planet for nature and all that, what they're doing is they're trying to allocate space where we focus on protecting biodiversity and then other places that are high potential for storing carbon, let's protect those for storing carbon. And again, the presumption is if we have animals that come in like herbivores that eat the trees that store the carbon, that's not good for carbon storage. So we might want to keep those separate. And people are even proposing that we have carbon parks now, you know, like you have protected areas that are exclusively for storing carbon. And that would imply that you would keep animals out. And certainly we know that protecting animals isn't going to be a panacea to save the carbon cycle. There are animals that are detrimental to carbon storage. And so we have to really be careful about that. But in places where animals can be useful, I think we should connect the two and actually conserve animals for the purposes of storing carbon in parks and protected areas. But also there isn't enough land on this planet reserved right now to actually meet the goal. So what we have to do is also conserve wildlife on non-protected lands working lands where people live. And so what we need to do is also think about an ethic where people share landscapes with biodiversity and see themselves more as part of nature rather than living separately from nature. And I think that's key too. It's getting in people's mindset that we need to you know, care for nature. We need to be better stewards of nature because it, it has implications for our well-being as well. That kind of goes into looking at how we can manage human wildlife conflicts. <laughs> I think that's really important to note that we kind of need to live with nature, not against it. Against it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really interesting point with it has to come from scientists and research such as the research you're doing, but also animal management on the ground and creating protected areas, but also taking into account humans and our activity and we kind of need to consider people's mindsets so we have a science communication background and maybe communicating those major issues to the general public and promoting the love of nature and living side by side is is also really important in going forward Definitely. And that has to go hand in hand with the solutions. Mm -hmm. You know, conservation has traditionally sort of tried to keep people away from nature so we can protect nature. And it's been a strong mentality. We need to change that mindset. But we also need to work with people and understand and appreciate their values and also learn from them. You know, local people have a lot of knowledge to provide and a lot of it is scientific it's just not written up in scientific journals. It's not presented in a formal way, but there's a lot of cultural local knowledge that has huge scientific value and it can contribute to really doing a better job. And once we understand that and align conservation programs with that knowledge, I think you'll get more buy-in from local communities. But we also have to recognize that they may have to trade off themselves. For example, if you're a livestock herder in parts of the world where you want to restore 
large carnivores, there's a huge risk of being killed yourself or having your livestock depredated. Or if you are growing crops in parts of the world and have elephants come through and trample all your crops, that's harm to your livelihood. And we need to respect that and compensate people for that. Also, you know, make them realize that if we're asking them to be stewards of nature for the sake of the planet, then the planet needs to think about how do we actually effectively recognize and compensate people financially. And it might mean creating alternative livelihoods, like being stewards of carbon rather than stewards of crops and making it worthwhile for people to continue to live where they live locally, but provide compensation for what they have to give up in order for the planet to be sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's ultimately all about balance. And I feel like the scales have very much gone towards humans rather than animals. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So on that point as well, what do you think are the next steps, both in terms of kind of implementing these strategies, but also in terms of your research? What do you think is important for going ahead in the future? There's a lot of growing interest in maybe using these kinds of strategies for carbon offsets, you know, and paying for carbon offsets. But ultimately, what we have to do is our due diligence and look at different places. And if people are interested in conserving wildlife for the purposes of mitigating climate change, we have to do some scientific research and actually calculate how much carbon benefit a given set of species might provide and verify that a little bit. So that it's going to require a little bit of hard work to, to do the scientific analyses. But then if you can demonstrate a value, then you have to work with local communities communities and get their help. You know, it's a two-way street. We can help them develop programs to conserve wildlife for the purposes of carbon, but we also have to have their buy-in. They have to have feedback from them and input in terms of what kinds of governance they want to see themselves under in terms of making sure that these programs are long-term and sustainable. How do we make sure that they realize the, the full financial benefits of this and work with the communities to help them become better stewards of the local landscape for a whole variety of environmental values? I think that's the benefit of this because you can work with local communities and they can feel like they have a kinship with the nature around them and the species they live with. And so I think you can get quicker buy-in. But on the flip side, we do have to recognize that there could be conflict. But if we do all of these little projects distributed all over the planet and you add all of those up, we have a global home run solution in the sense that everybody can feel like they can do their little part locally and align what they do locally and together we can all feel like we're helping to save the planet. I think that's going to be a more successful strategy than global policies, but it's going to be challenging because you have to build the trust of local communities. If you're an outsider, you have to work with local communities. You have to do the essential communication and explain to them and then also do the science to demonstrate that it will have value. So we have to roll up our sleeves and do a lot more work, but it's a different kind of work than we've been doing historically to deal with climate change. Yeah, I think with finding different ways of tackling it, that kind of feeds into eco-anxiety where people are just really not knowing how to to kind of deal with and improve the situation with climate change. And I think we do have to change our attitudes towards it. And this is a really good way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, more solutions focused and bringing positive impacts is so important with helping people to feel slightly less helpless in the face of such massive problems. I think that's really important. 
way to look at the future and the way that we do research and the way that we put it out as well. For sure. I just wanted to ask about the particular species as well. It seemed like a, not a random list, but <laughs> I kind of wanted to ask why you chose those species. So you looked at kind of major grazing vertebrates and then you looked at some sea creatures and things like that. I wanted to ask whether there's potential with other types of species, maybe underground or birds, uh, you know, there's thousands of them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a very good question. First off, you know, these are charismatic species. They're iconic species in their ecosystems that we've covered. And they've been well studied because of their iconic nature. We don't have data for more species because, as I mentioned earlier, the earth scientists, ecosystem scientists haven't really believed or thought about animals having an instrumental role in the carbon cycle. So they haven't even largely begun to measure what the animals can do, right? And so a lack of evidence doesn't necessarily mean evidence for lack of an effect, right? But if you don't measure it, you don't have evidence. And so you don't manage it, you don't think about it. And I think the tide is turning. You know, with this paper, there are other papers coming out that are also touting the benefits of animals for mitigating climate change. And I think we'll see more and more over the next decade, more and more deliberate research that quantifies how much carbon benefit these different animal species provide. And we'll have a much richer database on the diversity of animal species that we could enlist. And, you know, that gets to the high potential species. So we have a map in the article where we show globally where we could actually get benefits from other species, including beavers. There are lots of frugivores in the tropics. They spread seeds. They, they help to germinate the seeds when they release the seeds in their dung. The dung is a nutrient-rich pile, so the seeds actually have readily available nutrients. They germinate quickly, and a lot of these frugivores actually promote the germination and growth of trees that tend to be more carbon dense, you know, the, the kind of trees that are very hard and woody and contain more carbon than other trees that aren't dispersed by these species. And those are really curious ways in which the forest evolves and grows. And we haven't done our due diligence in fully quantifying those, those kinds of contributions. But there are some studies coming out that's showing that even in the tropics, if you look at a diversity of something like one to 66 different tree species. You know, you go across an environmental gradient from one to 66 different tree species. You obviously collect more carbon with the high diversity areas where you have the, the 60 or so tree species. The estimates are about three to four times more carbon in the highly diverse area than the low diversity area. But if you look over that same gradient and go from a diversity of one animal to 35 animal species, you actually boost that from three to four to five to six times more carbon when you have a combination of high diversity animals and a high diversity of tree species. So it really does show that there's some important value added and it comes from just the diversity of functional roles these animals play. And so again, I'm not saying just restore animals, think about the animals in the ecosystems they're in and think about plants as, as part of the solution as well. But um, I think we'll see there's a lot of potential. Nice, yeah. <laughs> Very good answer. <laughs> well, this has all been so fascinating. So thank you so much. We do have one last question for you. Unsurprisingly, we can definitely tell from this interview, and I'm sure our listeners can too, that you're passionate about um, conservation. So we have to ask, do you have a favorite animal? 
Do I have a favorite animal? Um, when I first decided I wanted to be an ecologist, I always wanted to study wolverines. I've never done that, but I had a passion for studying wolverines and I think they're a fascinating animal to me. Wolves are also something that I care about and I have studied wolves, but I do have an affinity for large carnivores and I have a soft part of my heart for, for wolves. I really do care about wolves a lot. Yeah, I hope you get to study wolverines one day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, yeah, yeah. Again, it's been a pleasure having you on Biosphere. You'll have to come back to tell us all about those new research endeavours, maybe wolverines, who knows? So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Oz. Thank you for having me, Beth and Freya. I've enjoyed myself. So it's now time for our silver lining of the episode. So every week we will be highlighting a new story or research study that we think is super positive or wholesome. We want to use this platform to show that there are people in the world that are doing their bit to save the planet or creating innovations that will be groundbreaking in the fight against climate change. This week we are putting the Zapata family in the spotlight. Dora Sanchez, her husband Hector Zapata and their daughter Samantha have set up an animal sanctuary in the Amazon rainforest in Colombia. Yeah, so originally this family were cattle breeders. They moved from the centre of Colombia to the jungle to start farming livestock. But in 2012, they started planting native trees on their 56 hectares of pasture. They then saw that the forest began to change and the fauna began to return. And they made the decision to sell their cows and let the jungle reclaim the land. But that's not all that they do. They also rescue animals that need help. And currently they house 60 creatures ranging from monkeys, birds and armadillos to puma cubs and an ocelot in their home and backyard. I saw a photo of the puma cub. It was adorable. Adorable. <laughs> so cute. But that just shows that there are people that are making a difference and... I think they are using ecotourism as well. So they invite visitors to come look at the nature reserve. And it's just wholesome. It's really wholesome. You should check it out. You can find new stories about it. And there's a video of their nature reserve, which is definitely worth a watch. That's it this week. Thanks, Beth, for helping present this episode. You're very welcome. And again, big thank you to Oz for joining us. We found the research so interesting and I hope our listeners did too. Join us next time for our episode on genetic technologies where we'll explore DNA damage and how it relates to cancer. Until next time.